In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. I now invite Pastor Jeff, who will preach on the topic of the church unleashed. Morning, Crossbridge. Ooh, that's loud. <laughs> it's good to be with you all this morning. Back at the beginning of 2021, two years ago, we preached through a sermon series on Acts chapters 1 to 12. We called that sermon series, The Church Unleashed. It was a different time then. That was an understatement. We were, we were worshiping only through the live stream, if you can remember back two years ago. right? The preachers, myself and Cola, who's now a ministry partner of ours overseas, and Dr. Jeff Arthurs, who are coming in at random times throughout the week and in the middle of the night to record our sermons. You know, I was preaching over there, and now I'm preaching over here. Uh, and the screenshot right, of myself was where I brought this dog leash. That was from the very first sermon in that series. Different time. Now, worship, too, was pre-recorded, and our worship leaders had to become fluent over, almost overnight in, like, Adobe Premiere and Final Cut Pro and a bunch of other things that half of us probably don't even recognize. It was a different time, and, you know, we look outside, and the commute was very, there was no commute, we were staying at home, there's no traffic on the roads, some of us were growing beards and just growing our hair long because we didn't know how to cut our own hair and everything was out of stock. And even again, last week, all the things that we talked about last week about having more direction and purpose and talking about bringing a lot of structural changes and cultural changes to Crossbridge so that we can be in a better place, more healthily to be able to raise up bridge builders. None of that had even started yet. The discussions for it had even happened yet. It was a different time. We were preaching on the church unleashed at a time when it felt very much like the church was leashed. And so, whether ironically or prophetically, the sermon series was there to serve as a reminder for us. A call to us, particularly at a time when it was very easy just to be focused on inwardly, to focus on us and us alone. 
And so for the next few months, you know, we're going to be finishing up Acts, the second half of Acts, chapters 13 to 28. And so if Acts 1 to 12 was the church unleashed, Acts 13 to 28 is to the ends of the earth. But this morning, since, you know, we recognize that it has been a long time, it's been a while, we're going to take a look back at Acts 1 to 12 just to get a refresher, figure out where we are in this narrative that Luke has written for us, that God is speaking to us, and a preview then also, a look forward to Acts 13 to 28. So the whole book of Acts, it's actually part two of this one account that begins with the gospel of Luke. So Luke is the author of both volumes. He begins our passage just like we read this morning, verses 1 and 2. In the first book, Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit and to the apostles whom he had chosen. So this first volume, right, Gospel of Luke, describes what Jesus began to do and teach. And now we move into the second volume, Acts. It describes what Jesus continues to do and teach, but through and in the ministry of the apostles. And so traditionally, Acts is actually short for Acts of the Apostles. It's what they're doing, right? It's all about the early church and uh, what the apostles did. But on a higher level, as we work our way through the rest of this book, we are reminded that we can think of this as Not just the acts of the apostles, but the acts of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Because even in this first chapter, even though Jesus has ascended, he reigns from the heavenly throne, he's seated at the right hand of God, he continues to act and to be present through and in the apostles in the church. It's not like Jesus has just peaced out and he's just going to let the apostles run wild and do whatever Uh, they want to do. But Jesus, even at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, has promised to be with his people. He has promised to send his spirit to empower us, to enable us, to equip us. And so Luke is placing for us Jesus front and center at the formation of the church. The people of God now is the community of those who follow Jesus. Jesus is leading his people, us, through the Spirit to go out into the world and to invite all nations to live under his reign. The, the book of Acts has you know, what we call this inclusio. And some of you might remember that term. It, it's basically bookends, right? Acts is bookended by this theme or this focus on the kingdom, on Christ's heavenly reign. And so in verse 3, we see that Luke notes how Jesus taught the apostles about the kingdom of God. In verse 6, the apostles are asking, you know, Jesus, when are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if we skip ahead all the way to the end of this book, there we see Luke writing about Paul, imprisoned in Rome. And it says, Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so, brothers and sisters, we we are going to look first at Acts 1 to 12, the church unleashed. And so these 12 chapters that we preached on about two years ago, we, we, we loosely organized them and divided them into three movements. The first movement that we went over was this, chapters 1 to 4, the church is formed. And so these early churches, what was established was the identity of the church, 
right? God's people. And the mission of the church, Jesus' witnesses. So in the passage that was read for us this morning, Acts 1, 1 to 11, we saw that, hey, these disciples, they're asking Jesus this question. Lord, when will you, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's in the forefront of their minds, this kingdom of God. And Jesus' response, look how he responds to me. He doesn't address a particular time, but he's still answering their question. He turns it back on to the disciples. The disciples ask him, when are you going to restore the kingdom? And Jesus says, you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, each and every one of you, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so it's this flip of the you. So much so that when Jesus ascends, the disciples are there gazing into heaven. These two angels appear saying, men of Galilee, why, why are you stand there looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, stop staring and get going. Stop staring, start spreading the gospel. Expanding his kingdom. And that's because God's kingdom was being restored in and through the church. And so at the end of our passage, we're given this scene. This picture of these remaining 11 apostles that are gathered together with 120 of Jesus' other followers. And Peter stands up to make the case that, hey, someone needs to come and take Judas's spot. Judas, if you don't know, he was the one who betrayed Jesus. And we find out that he took his own life shortly after. So they're down a person. And we might ask, like, why is it so significant that they need to get to 12? Why is 12 the magical number? What does this have to do with God's kingdom being restored? What does it have to do with the identity of the church as God's people? Well, what we find is Matthias, he's being numbered with the 11 apostles. He takes up that, that spot. And the 12, this number represents Israel for them, just like the 12 tribes. So when the apostles asked Jesus, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This was only the beginning. This was part of it. God's kingdom was being restored through the reconstitution of the 12 which represents Israel. They, they're seeing themselves in this wider narrative story of God's plan of salvation. And then through the 12, the church would then be formed under this new covenant that Jesus has brought. And the nations would then be invited to live under God's rule and reign, his kingdom. And so the reforming of this 12 takes place between Jesus' commissioning of the apostles and then this first public preaching in the next chapter. So it's an important step as a, as a story, as God's plan moves forward for the identity and the mission of the church. And what we also see in the church's formation is the empowering of the church by the Spirit to accomplish its mission. So we, particularly as Crossbridge, especially after last week as we talked about our mission statement, as we looked at that handout that's I think still in the, the Welcome Center if you didn't get one, about our mission and our values and this overall direction that we're all going to hopefully unite around. 
and harmonize our hearts around. Well, you know, this is a task. This task of making disciples, it's a task that is not faced alone. Nor is it accomplished by our own strength, by our own skills, by our own uh, intelligence, by our own talents. But God is sending and has sent his Holy Spirit to empower each and every one of us and to empower his people together through transformation, through boldness, through effective witness. And so in these first four chapters, we saw that the church was formed, right? And we asked, well, what, what was that church like? What was the, these people like as they gathered together, as they shared their lives together? What was the character of this church? One of the things that we talked about in the, uh, in the first sermon series, Acts 1 to 12, was this picture of the early church as a missional church. What's that? A missional church is a community of God's people that defines itself and organizes its life around its real purpose of being an agent of God's mission to the world. So in other words, the church's true and authentic organizing principle is mission. When the church is in mission, it is the true church. That's the thing that is going to flow through our ministries, our members, our decision-making. It means a, a congregation adopting this missional posture of going rather than coming. Not always meaning moving to a different place, but simply having that posture of always being missional, outward-facing. It means cultivating a culture of disciple-making and a culture, a place, structures of equipping our members for a task unfinished. And so if we believe that the church is a people, right? The church is not a list of programs. It's not a list of simply what you find in the bulletin that you might pick up on your way in. It's not a, a building either. Like we could meet outside right now and we'd still be the church. If that is, you know, what we mean when we say we are the church and not simply I go to church, what difference would that make? So another author put it this way, that the missional church is pointed in five directions. We look upward to God as a source of mission. He's the one who gives us purpose as a community of faith. We look inward still to ourselves as those who embark on mission together. We look backward, understanding that we are not divorced from history, from God's plan over uh, centuries. But we are part of a greater thing. And we look backward to God's creational design for the world. And at the same time, we look forward too to the coming of God's promised kingdom because we who believe, we know how the story ends. We know how the story ends, and God invites us to get us there. We look outward, too, to the nations as, they pro as we proclaim and promote God's salvation. So in one of the earlier sermons, uh, many years ago, two years ago, I, I talked about, I shared about this guy, Tamerlan the Great. 
He was a conqueror in the 14th century who nearly killed off Christianity in parts of Asia. He was called the exterminator for his, you know, mass spread massacres and persecutions. And Samuel Moffat, he's this author, he talks about Tamerlane in his book, A History of Christianity uh, in Asia. And he makes this point about evangelism in the church. And he says this, that what finally withered the proud advance of Christianity across Asia was not the persecution of the Tamerlane, though the permanent effects of that ravaging destruction still linger, but more crippling than any persecution was the church's long line of decisions to compromise evangelistic and missionary missional priorities for the sake of survival. And so the danger there was not only and primarily this external persecution or external suffering, but it was this internal self-sabotage under the guise of survival. The lesson here for us is that the command to evangelize, to make disciples, to share this awesome news that we hold on to, this treasure that we have in Jesus is paramount. Particularly in a context where the church is facing an incredible amount of opposition. And sometimes that opposition comes in the form of a lot of external forces and external pressures. Sometimes it comes in the, in the medical, metaphorical form of a slow growing cancer, eating away at us, where we're not fully aware of what's happening, but we're slowly dying. What we see in this example that Moffat brings up is that the church was compromising on its mission. That ultimately led to almost its demise. It was no longer a church unleashed, like the one that we saw or we see in Acts 1 to 12, but it was a church that leashed itself. So this leads to the second movement that we saw in Acts 1 to 12. So the church was formed, and now the church is persecuted, chapters 5 to 8. So we read, as, as Paul and the other followers of Jesus, they, they travel, they inc- encounter increasing opposition and resistance Rebellion, revolts to, the, to this movement of followers, right? They, they, typically, they would travel to these new places who have never heard of Jesus. They would go to synagogues, these Jewish believers. And, and they would go and, and proclaim that Jesus is king. And as the story in Acts unfolds, there's encouragement for us to be gained for us. Especially as they encounter persecution and pushback. What we find is that the church suffers and scatters, but the gospel spreads. So take a look at chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. There we read that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Stephen was an early believer. He was a a deacon, leader in the church. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So these devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So Luke, as he's writing this for us, makes this connection between Stephen's death 
and the greater persecution against the church. And he sandwiches Stephen's burial in between these two verses about the church being uh, scattered and the church undergoing suffering. But it's not all bad news because God is sovereign. He can turn even the most evil and horrific of things to good for our good and for his glory. So Stephen's death, yeah, begins this greater persecution against the early church, but it also ends up spreading the gospel. People, believers, are, are sent to all these different places. The regions of Judea and Samaria, the very places that Jesus spoke of when he was speaking to his disciples in our passage this morning, which means that the gospel is going forth like seeds that, that are scattered across the field. They will take root and grow and bear fruit. And so the church is formed, the church is persecuted, and now uh, the church expands. Chapters 9 or 8 to 12. In Acts chapter 8, we begin to get a picture of who the gospel spreads to. Because it's not just Jewish people now. It's other nations, other people groups. Who is the gospel for? We look in chapter 8 at this guy, Philip. And he has these two awesome encounters. One of them was with the Samaritans. Samaritans were a hostile and hated group by the Jewish people. Geographically, they, they lived between Jerusalem and Judea in the south and Galilee in the north. And they were also ethnically different, being half Jewish, having different beliefs about where to worship God. The Jewish people and the Samaritans, they had, didn't have a great relationship. There's a lot of contentious history there. Even in parts of the gospel, as we read the accounts, we can tell that some of these relationships were strained. They weren't great. And later on, Philip encounters this other guy, this Ethiopian. And this already tells us a lot about the person that ends up hearing and believing the gospel. He's, he's not a Jewish person from Jerusalem. He's not half Jewish either. He's an Ethiopian. Different Ethiopia from the Ethiopia today, but still in Africa. And generally, the people back then regarded these Ethiopians as dark skin. Dark skin. And so what we have, what is being pictured for us, as we read, is not a fellow Jewish believer coming to faith, but a black African encountering the gospel, hearing it, Rejoicing, a black African who is completely different in so many ways from Philip, and yet they walk away both rejoicing and believing in the same God. And I think that's an amazing picture that is being depicted for us. And Luke doesn't just say that he's an Ethiopian, he says he's a eunuch. So there's more there about how different this guy is. He, that is, uh, being a eunuch, he is a male who's been castrated. A lot of eunuchs were also slaves too. And so they were stigmatized because they're castrated. They're ridiculed as slaves because they're, they belong to a different social group. And we get these two profiles now of conversion of people who receive the gospel. First you have this hostile and hated group, the Samaritans, and now you have a guy that is geographically ethnically, socially, and even somewhat sexually different. 
from Philip the evangelist. We see in this passage that the gospel is for all of them. It's not just for Israel. It's not just for one nation, one people. It's not just for the East. It's for the West. not just for the West, but it's for the East. The gospel is for all nations and all people. And as the church expands from Jerusalem to, to Judea to Samaria and on, we enter now into the latter half of Acts. Acts 13 to 28, which is going to, where we're going to be spending our time with the next few weeks and months to the ends of the earth. We begin first with these missionary journeys in chapters 13 to 20. where We're going to be journeying with Paul as he sets forth, as he embarks on these journeys to spread the gospel. And along the way, Paul is going from place to place to share the news of the risen King Jesus and how he's forming this new family of God. The family of God is made up of different people and different nations. Family that is defined by faith. Not by whose parents, uh, who, who are your parents. A family whose membership is not based on ethnic identity or on following certain rules. But on trusting and obeying Jesus. Along the way, he begins to plant churches, and people, these believers stay, and these, they build up these churches locally. And he comes back sometimes, and he pours into them. Now, it's the same news that, that Paul is sharing that often conflicts with the wider culture in the world. And so throughout these eight chapters or so, we're going to see examples of Paul and his fellow travel companions as they find ways to try and you know, make the gospel relevant and contextualize the gospel to help people see how this good news of Jesus speaks to these different groups of people. And yet there's still increasing opposition and even confusion sometimes. And part of that is because, you know, the message that Paul is bringing, the message that we have been entrusted with, it's so different sometimes oftentimes from the message of the world. Because for Paul, these Greco-Romans, the, the world that he's in, they just didn't have the categories that, that are presented in the gospel. The idea that their God would die on a cross on the most horrific form of punishment was, didn't make sense. Right? These early Christians, too, were accused of stirring up rebellions and of, uh, accused of committing treason against Caesar because Paul was announcing, hey, there is another king. His name is Jesus. And, but then at the same time, it's, it's paradoxical, right? Because the way of Jesus, the Christian life, was antithetical to some of the practices of the people around them. And so they're accusing Paul, hey, you're, uh, you're talking about this other king. You're going to lead revolts and rebellions and violence. And every time Paul gets arrested, the authorities are like, he's no threat. Because Jesus has taught his followers to be people of peace. Even as they proclaim this countercultural, upside-down, subversive, in some sense, message of God kingdom and our savior and king jesus 
And so they, with Paul, they just kind of, they let him go. He begins a cycle. But eventually, Paul ends up back in Jerusalem at the end of the third missionary trip. He gets arrested. The Jewish people, they get him arrested because they think he's betrayed Israel. The Roman authorities, they think the authorities, they think he's this other guy who led this revolt, this Egyptian guy. And this begins the final chapters of Acts as we journey with Paul from Jerusalem to Rome. And as Paul stands trial, each time the charges, again, they don't stick because all Paul is doing is he's proclaiming the hope that he has in the risen King Jesus. And Paul goes from trial to trial and authority to authority. He makes his way to Rome. But more importantly, it's not just that this one guy makes his way to Rome, but the message that he brings arrives in Rome. And now the expansion of God's kingdom that we hit on in the very beginning of Acts 1 to 12 is now reaching the seat, the center of Caesar's kingdom in Rome. The gospel of the one true and risen King Jesus is now in the heart of Caesar's kingdom. And this is how Acts ends for us. But what we're going to find in the very last, give you a sneak preview, in the very last sermon of this series is that it's really the end of the beginning. As God's kingdom continues to expand in and through the church up through today, we are invited to participate in that, to be included in that, to be unleashed for God's glory. Something that we prayed for as we sang this morning. And we remember that God has given us his spirit to empower us, to transform us, to equip us, to give us more boldness for effective witness. As one uh, author put it this way, that the ordinary people of God, ordinary people like you and me, equipped with the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, dedicated to the son of God, together we can accomplish the mission of God. So Crossbridge, let us pray that and keep that in mind, knowing that God has promised to be with us as we go forth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for your gift of the Holy Spirit. We give thanks for your call upon us, for including us. We know that there are many things in life that might distract us, that might, that might turn us away. There are many things that, we might, that might keep us from following you faithfully whether it be due to fear or other things, God. We pray that as a congregation and as a church, you would release us from those things, that you would bring us to a place where together we would live uh, in greater love for you and greater love for our neighbor. And by your spirit and your word, in Jesus' name, amen.